0: Welcome to the SLP Happy Hour podcast. I'm Sarah, an SLP working in private practice in Oregon. I'm also a materials designer on Teachers Pay Teachers. You can find my parent handouts bundle by going to the Teachers Pay Teachers website and searching for the SLP Happy Hour store. I'm also a speaker on burnout. You can get more information on my work, as well as show notes that include links and transcripts from each episode at slphappyhour.com. Today, I have a guest host with me, Jessica.
1: I'm Jessica Texera. I am so excited to be here. So a little bit about me. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist. I own a private practice in Massachusetts where I specialize in supporting gestalt language processors and their families, I run an Instagram account where I post a lot about Gestalt language processing and neurodiversity affirming practices. You can find me as at Gemma June SLP. I'm also a member of the Meaningful Speech team, so you might see me here and there on that social media account as well. Okay, so my first question for you, Sarah, is have you always focused on those specialized areas you mentioned such as autism, AAC, speech sound disorders and apraxia with your caseload, did you start out as more of a generalist?
0: I definitely started as a generalist. I worked for the schools for a long time before private practice, so I had to be a generalist. And over the years in my own private practice, I have developed interest areas, but they've really been based on who are the clients coming in, who are the clients I'm seeing, and what are their needs. I do like my mix of students now, which is like you said, autism, AAC, speech sound disorders, lots of apraxia. So it's what just happened to happen, but it wasn't intentional, but I'm really enjoying this current mix of students.
1: I'm happy to hear that you're enjoying that mix. Um, So my second question is, as someone who is private pay only, I'm curious how it's been taking insurance. It's something I've debated initially. I I debated it. I went back and forth, but I ended up going private pay only. So I'm just curious what the pros and cons are for you when it comes to taking insurance.
0: First, I'm very jealous. (laughs) Private pay only, I would love to. I do think there may be a day and time when I can do it, but not yet. So first I want to address why I take insurance. This is a really common question people will ask me, why I don't just do private pay only. And my response is it's really not that easy. So there are a lot of factors that should go into you deciding if you want to do private pay or take insurance, including if you live near a larger city. Because if you do, you'll have a larger pool of potential clients to pull from versus a small town, like in my case, where there are fewer clients to pull from. So private pay might be more difficult. As well as a factor is honestly, how rich is your area? What what is the income of people? Do they have that extra cushion in their income to pay for private speech therapy? So where I live, there's a lot of rich retirees and a lot of families that are struggling because housing is really expensive here and cost of living is high. You also need to consider your individual situation. Is your income a small part of your family's total income? Is it half? Is it more? Is it all of your family's income? If you make a big portion of your family's income, or a portion that your family really needs to count on, that may lead you more towards the line of accepting insurance so that you can develop a client base of paying clients more quickly. For me, I'm the breadwinner of my own family. I live in a small town. Again, I also live where there are rich retirees, but young families who are often strapped for cash. So my route was private pay. The pros of accepting insurance is that you can develop your client base usually much more quickly. More people are willing to use their insurance benefits versus pay out of pocket. Also, most insurance plans usually do pay on time and there is a learning curve, but the process isn't too complicated. I would encourage you that if you've worked in schools, you already have the skills you need to be detail oriented, to meet expectations and deadlines, to understand rules. If you can do that. You can do insurance billing, you really can. It just does take time and it's really hard to start from scratch because there's a lot to learn. So the cons of accepting insurance are that sometimes you get denials. When you get a denial, you can resubmit. Uh, Also insurance plans make a lot of mistakes. So for example, at the beginning of a new year, I'll get a lot of denials and I'll have to just resubmit them all because I know that it was a mistake on the part of the insurance. I would also encourage SLPs not to pay someone else to do your billing. So to be clear, for most solo practices like mine, you just won't have that much extra money to pay someone. But also you need to know the workings of your own business. I have paid for help with insurance billing in the past, but it always felt like I still had to follow up on the more complex denials And it really, in the end, wasn't worth the money I was paying those companies. So I do do my own insurance billing, and I plan to stay that way. So in summary, for me in my own situation, the price I pay for accepting insurance and the headaches involved are worth it. But I acknowledge that that just isn't true for all SLPs in all situations. I wish
1: that we had connected when I started my practice because it would have been so great to be able to talk through this with you because insurance was something that was so hard to wrap my head around. But just listening to you talk about it was super interesting and uh, super interesting to listen to. Okay. So my third question would be as someone who has thrown around the idea of hiring somewhat soon, I'm curious if you have always been a solo practice. So if yes, why? And if not, why the change back to solo.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna tell you the story, but then Jessica, I would love to hear your reaction and like if I've if I've dissuaded you from hiring or if you're still wanna hire or what your thoughts are. So here's an answer I wish someone would have told me earlier and it may not be the answer you want to hear. Of course, you can take my experience with a grain of salt, and you should always run your own numbers in your own clinic. So here's what I found. If I have one to two SLP employees, I'm making a small percentage of their income, but I'm truly not making enough for it to be worth it, again, for me to be someone's boss and to make a decent income from the work I'm doing to be a boss. So from SLP friends with practices. Also, they've noted that the magic number for them is around four SLP hires or so, and some of those can be part-time to make it worth it for them to do those administration meetings and to use up that bandwidth that being a boss requires and to get paid enough to make that work worth it. So I also want to address hiring SLP contractors versus employees. I have reviewed the IRS guidelines and based on their guidance as an SLP, not as a tax professional, I don't believe SLPs meet the criteria to be independent contractors. So you should do the research for yourself on the IRS website and take a look. So when I hire my SLPs, they've always been employees. That means if they're scheduled for an eight hour workday, I pay them for an eight hour workday whenever I can. Although there have been times I have to ask if they can go home early if there's cancels at the end of the day. So that whole situation has been really stressful for me to still pay people even when they aren't seeing clients. It makes me feel like money is tight. So again, all of this will depend on your particular situation, your expenses and what you're charging for services. You need to run your own numbers. And if you're listening to this, see what's worth it for you. So again, to summarize, I have had employees and I am happily a solo practice right now. So Jessica, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on hiring? A
1: lot of the things that you touched on are a lot of the things that have been swaying me towards not hiring recently. So it's, it's, Mm -hmm. I'm actually happy to hear your thoughts on some of those. Like for example, where you said that magic number is four. So I don't think I'm ready to take on four employees. And if that's really that sweet spot, that I don't think that's something I have the bandwidth to do right now. And aside from that, touching on uh, the IRS when it comes to employees versus independent contractors, um, that's something that I have been reading about extensively. And not only does it confuse me, but it also makes me super nervous um, that I'm going to do something wrong and that's also a headache that I just don't think that I have um, the ability to handle right now. So um, I'm happy uh, to hear your thoughts because it's kind of swaying me to think that it's probably not something I'm ready for right now, um, maybe in the future, but um,
0: yeah, not right now. Yeah. And my business finances are more stable when I'm seeing a full-time caseload and I'm paying myself versus when I'm a boss and I'm paying like one or two other people. And so like I'm less stressed. So that's what works for me. Definitely. Thanks
1: for sharing that. That was really great to hear you talk through that. Um, So moving on to my next question. So As a newer practice owner, one of the hardest things to do for me is set boundaries around work life balance. So, for example, I find it's really easy for me to just jump on my phone and answer an email and what was supposed to be just quickly answering an email turns into so much more. So I'm really curious what your biggest piece of advice is on work life balance.
0: Yeah, I love to get tasks done and checked off the list and get back to people who've asked me questions. And I found at the beginning of my practice that I was working like 50 hour weeks and my family was suffering and that I couldn't do that anymore. So now I'm a big proponent of Boundaries. I was not aware of how much I'd need to learn about communication and conflict, setting expectations and boundaries than in my first year of private practice. It's a really hard time. There's this big, steep learning curve for like insurance billing, owning a business, but also boundaries. And boundaries also isn't something that's one and done. It's something that you do over time and you're always refining. So here are things that have worked for me in my situation. So take what you want, leave what you don't, and it may work for anyone listening. One, have a separate cell phone for your clinic. I did that as soon as I could afford it. I didn't do it right away, but I did it probably by the end of the first year. And it is an extra expense, but as soon as I could afford it, I did it. So I have a personal cell phone and a personal cell phone number. And a work cell phone and a work cell phone number. So again, it is this extra expense, but I love turning off my work phone during the weekend, putting it in airplane mode in the evening. And my personal phone is just my personal phone. It has lowered my stress level tremendously. And for me, it is so worth the money. Number two, have an intake process where people don't need to call you. And again, based on your population and the kids you see, maybe you need to have these phone conversations. But if someone isn't on my caseload yet, they can't talk to me on the phone. So here's how I do it. On both my voicemail and my website, I outline step by step what clients need to do to get on the wait list, as well as how long the wait list is. So to get on the wait list, they have a form they can fill out online. And that is their first step. So it's not to call the clinic. And if they call the clinic, the voicemail message will say, please go back to this form that's on the website. And when you're thinking about talking to these interested clients, there's a lot of people who just want to kick the tires you know, and not buy the car. And let's think about it this way. If a doctor wouldn't call a family at home that they weren't even working with yet, why do we? We get to protect our time too. So especially if you're in a situation like mine, where your waiting list is pretty long, there are just too many interested new client phone calls to be able to screen each one and talk to each person. And you just truly probably don't have the time. Number three, I don't attend IEP meetings for free. If parents want me there, they need to pay. And again, this is because I'm already working full time. So if I need to cancel a student, session that I would be making income from to go to an IP meeting, I need to be compensated for that time. Number four, if parents are separated and co-parenting, communication with them needs to be together, not separate. This is a new boundary I started this year, year six of private practice, I think it is, and I wish I would have learned it easier. I will not double the amount of communication time on my calendar because they cannot be on the phone line. Or at a speech session together. So that's their responsibility as co-parents. I'm not saying I would never, ever make exceptions. I can think of a few specific situations where if one of the parents would feel physically unsafe or threatened, I wouldn't do that to them. But in most cases, again, I will not double my consultation time because parents can't be grown ups and be on the phone line together. So when I did separate phone calls each time, it was a huge drain on my time. It took away from my family. And it's just something that I Can't continue to do. My clients also know if they call me, I will not call them back. So they are welcome to call and leave a voicemail if it's something I need to know, but I will email or text back since I'm in sessions all day because, again, I am doing this full time. So families can always text or email to cancel a session or leave that voicemail. But if they need to talk to me about something and it's a significant conversation, again, I need to get paid for that time. So we need to do it during our session time. So you may be thinking now, if you're listening, that is so many boundaries. Isn't that too much? Will it scare people away? So I wanted to tell you about one of my recent experiences with a counselor that taught me to be more boundary. So last month, I started working with a new counselor who has been the most boundaryed of any professional I have ever worked with. So she's clear that she likes phone calls and texts, but not to email her and that she won't respond to emails. So, okay, won't do that. She charges by the minute if you call her on the phone. She has a clear cancellation policy and you have to pay for 50% of the session if you cancel 24 hours or less in advance. There are even more boundaries that I can't even remember, but my thought initially was, whoa, this is a lot of boundaries. This is kind of intimidating. And then I honestly felt some gentleness and understanding for her because if this is what she needs to continue practicing, I wanna make sure I'm acting within those boundaries. So remember boundaries aren't mean, they're educational and they show people how they can interact with you. And they help educate people about what to expect when they work with you. When I didn't have any boundaries, my time with clients started to encroach upon my evenings and family time and harm my relationships with the people I love most. Boundaries are necessary because time is a limited resource. And when we choose extra work, we are giving up family time and alone time. And that's time we need to recharge and to keep going in this profession. As caring professionals, we want to please our clients and say yes, but there becomes a tipping point where doing so harms us. Wow,
1: well, that was, I just feel like that made me see so many things differently in terms of boundaries. I'm so happy that you just talked through those. I also, just quickly, I never thought about getting a separate work phone. I have a, separate phone number, but the stop the calls still go to my personal phone. So it's still difficult to kind of separate that from when I'm not working. So I think that's going to be something that I take and run with. That's such a great idea. I think that will help me set boundaries so much better when it comes to jumping on my phone and then doing way more work than I had originally planned. So thank you. I appreciate that.
0: It will change your life. It is, yes, do it.
1: Sarah, I think you just changed my life. <laughs> um. Anyway, so on that note, perfection in people-pleasing, talk to me. What is your biggest piece of advice for a new
0: practice owner when it comes to these? Create systems first and boundaries second to reinforce those systems. So your systems should reinforce your boundaries and your systems should be a process you lead clients through in order to work with you have a clear roadmap of what people need to do to get on your waitlist or to complete the intake process as a new client tell people what to expect once you are within the intake process make it clear that if they want your time they will have to pay you for that so that's things like extra phone calls attending meetings and so on and what your cancellation policy is, and what your payment policies are. Again, having systems in place and really educating families as I go has been really helpful as the first line of defense. That way, when a boundary violation comes up, let's say a parent wants an involved phone call with me, I can say, okay, per your signed intake agreement, you can pay X dollars, you know, whatever your fee is, for a 30-minute phone call, or we can discuss this during your next session. Which would you like to choose? Again, make it systematized and clearly outline your boundaries in your intake paperwork. If a boundary gets bumped up against, refer the parent to your intake paperwork and remind them of the boundary.
1: Thank you, Sarah. It has been so great to listen to you answer these questions. It's so helpful as someone who's just starting out. Um, So now it's Sarah's turn to ask me some questions about my private practice. So again, just a refresher about me. I am a newer private practice owner. I opened up a solo practice in January of 2022. I own a mobile practice where I travel to clients' homes, and I offer virtual services and consultations. I specialize in Gestalt language processing and supporting neurodivergent clients. I see clients right outside of Boston in the Metro West area, and I run an Instagram account under the name Gemma June SLP. and I'm also a Meaningful Speech team member.
0: All right. I think it's really cool that you're cash only and also that you travel to students' homes. Like in my mind, you're like one of those people who like have an RV and open it up and it's like the ocean and they're drinking a smoothie, you know, like those lifestyle influencers. So I'm sure I have a very rosy. Yeah. I'm sure I'm wearing rose colored glasses Um, I do feel like I'm too much of a control freak for that, and I'm really space sensitive, so I do need my own space. I need it tidy and organized in a way that feels good. But that said, having a physical location is expensive. And so I have a lot of questions about not having a physical space, um, including how did you decide to drive to clients' homes? And what were the factors that went into making that decision?
1: Well, definitely rose-colored glasses because my car is a mess because I spend so much time in it. But anyways, back to your question. I decided to start a mobile practice because I knew that I wanted to make the leap into owning a practice, but I wasn't really in a position position to leave the job that I was at. Uh, I also wanted to keep my overhead costs as low as I possibly could. Since I traveled to clients' homes, I was able to see clients on the side from the job that I was at after hours, on my days off, I also didn't feel immense pressure to grow quickly because I didn't have rent or many costs that I needed to cover that come along with having a brick and mortar space. I was able to really focus on just building my caseload up slowly until I felt that I was in a comfortable position to leave the job that I was at. Um, Another factor was that I was renting, I was living in Boston, directly in Boston at the time when I started my practice And I knew that wasn't going to be a long-term situation. It is way too expensive to live in Boston. And so I didn't want to open up a space when I wasn't 100% sure where I was going to be living long-term. So traveling to homes just gave me the flexibility that I
0: needed to make that jump into private practice. I think that was very smart. And help me picture your day. So how much time are you spending in the car? How many students can you see in one day? Uh, where it doesn't feel like too much driving or too much treatment?
1: I spend a lot of time in my car. Uh, It typically takes about 20 to 30 minutes for me to get from house to house in between clients. And my furthest client is 45 minutes away from my house. My sessions are anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour long if they're in person. So I see anywhere between two to five clients in person a day. But five is my absolute max. That's where I have to cut it there. Um, Some days I do see a mix of in-person and virtual clients. Uh, Like I mentioned in my introduction, I am on the Meaningful Speech team part-time, so that does fill up a part of my work week as well. I don't have a full-time caseload due to that, so that does allow me to have a good balance between traveling to homes and being able to work from home as well. I do think that I may have a different out I would have a different outlook on traveling if I was trying to fill my schedule full-time traveling to homes. I think that I would
0: be burnt out if I was trying to do that. That's good to just hear part-time, it's okay, but full-time, you would probably want to think twice about doing that. So thank you for being so clear and detailed in that answer. I appreciate it. So what are the challenges of driving to clients' homes and what are the benefits?
1: So some of the main challenges are weather and distance. So I live in the Northeast and inevitably we are going to get bad weather throughout the year. So when this happens, I'm usually able to see some clients online, but others I'm not able to for various reasons. I did set up my schedule so that Fridays are open. I leave those open for makeup sessions, evaluations, just administrative work that I need to get done. But of course, not all people are available on Fridays, and when you rely mainly on your practice for income, cancellations definitely aren't ideal. Uh, Also, when you're a mobile practice, it can be tricky setting boundaries about how far you're willing to drive and strategically putting together a schedule so that you see clients closer together on the same days, and sometimes that's just not possible. Uh, Starting out, you want clients so you're going to be willing to drive further. Then as your caseload builds, you may not want to drive as far as you originally were when you started out. And I've tried very, very hard to reach out to other SLPs in close by areas so that I don't feel obligated to take everyone who reaches out. So this way I have a place to refer these clients to and I don't feel like I'm leaving anybody hanging um, it, without giving them somewhere to potentially go
0: yeah and that's another tip is to have an email drafted with other places that you can refer clients to and something that I just started doing this year is uh identifying areas in which I don't want to practice as much so for example fluency so instead of having a general list and you don't no one needs to do this you can have a general list that's fine but if it's a fluency client, I actually have to write out ahead of time because drawing that boundary is so hard. Like, um, I'm not well-versed in fluency. And unfortunately at this time, you know, as a full-time provider, I'm not able to research it to provide the level of service. I would like to Here's someone who loves doing fluency or something like that. And so once you know who's working in the areas around you, you can even get more detailed about who you send where. And for me, writing out that language and just saying, um, I'm not the best fit for you, but I know someone who is. Is it OK if I email you some suggestions? That way I can like cut and paste has also been really helpful because I I have absolutely in the first six years of my practice found myself taking clients that I'm just not an expert in. I need to do a lot of research outside of my working hours. I'm always doubting myself. And when you work in private practice, people really expect a high level of service. So it's really nice to say, oh, I do these you know, two to three things.
1: Absolutely, I've found that connecting with SLPs has been an absolute game changer. So that's a great piece of advice, Sarah. So I would definitely like to have my own space in the future, but I do not have any type of set timeline for that. So I know that is an ultimate goal of mine, um, and I know it will be a move that I'll make when the timing's right. But at the moment, traveling to homes just works for me in my current situation. I also struggle with the idea sometimes, to be honest. Um because I really love the ability to be in clients' homes. I love being in their most comfortable, their most familiar environment. And when I travel to homes, I'm able to be in those environments. I'm able to have such close relationships with the families that I work with. When I worked in a clinic setting, so before I started my private practice, I honestly found myself feeling disconnected from families even when I tried to include them as much as possible. I don't think this is the case for every clinic. It was just the case for the clinic I was at. I find that, I find though that having these close relationships in a natural environment is especially helpful with uh, working with Gestalt language processors. I'm able to easily coach and include parents who have often never even heard of Gestalt language processing. And I also have the opportunity to naturally model language for my clients during their everyday
0: routines and play. I think that what I'm learning is kids with who use AAC, um, kids with complex communication needs or high support needs, these are kids who I often find myself wishing I could see in their homes because there becomes a point when in order to support the student, we need to support the environment in which the student is interacting and that needs to be our first order of business. So I do see some disconnection uh, in some of my learners uh, and limitations of the clinic model. We're making progress but sometimes I wonder like hey if I could go to their house I wonder if this would be different. And what where do where do you want your clinic to go in the future? what are some goals you have? For your clinic, what are some things you'd like to change in the years ahead?
1: So, like I said, my biggest goal is to open a clinic space, and I'm just, I'm not sure when that will be or exactly what that will look like. I'm still okay with traveling to homes for the time being, but once I do open a clinic space, I would like to have um, both SLPs and OTs working for me. Um, Since I specialize in Gestalt Language Processing and I mainly work with autistic children, being able to work closely with or even co-treat with occupational therapists would be an absolute dream for me, and it would be ideal for the clients that I serve too. Uh, I would want to have a decent sized space, I would like to have a sensory gym, I'd like to have equipment. I want to make sure that it's set up to make parents feel invited and included in sessions, Like I mentioned, one of my favorite things is traveling to homes. It's that connection that I make with families in the coaching piece, and I just don't want to lose that connection with families by having
0: a physical space. Mm I recently started co-treating with an OT in a sensory gym one day a week. So she's also a private practice owner and it has been so wonderful. So I don't pay rent, but I bring the clients because I have a waiting list and she doesn't at the moment. So the kids are so much more calm and engaged. Having that big space matters and having access to sensory equipment uh, is amazing. There's structures to climb, they can swing, they can slide. And it really does help. That's it for this episode of the SLP Happy Hour podcast. For this episode, we discussed life in two very different private practices and what it can look like, as well as a self-care challenge to reduce urgency. We hope you enjoyed listening in as much as we enjoyed recording it. Until next time.